Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 988. To begin today's show, David Lorelo welcomes David Cohn, five-time All-Star pitcher and current broadcaster for the Yankees and Sunday Night Baseball on ESPN. We hear about how and why Cohn modeled his style after Luis Tiant, and which pitchers in the majors today might be taking after Cohn a little bit. The Davids also discuss the impact of modern pitching science and things like seam-shifted wake, and why the Yankees do it so well. Finally, Cohn shares some great stories from his playing days, including getting hits off of John Smoltz, getting in trouble talking to the media, and how he kept David Wells out of trouble during the magical 1998 season. The 1998 Yankees were obviously one of the one of the best teams of all time, record-wise. It was a legendary team, and he was the, the best pitcher on that team, but early in the year, he really struggled. So I went to Joe Torre, our manager, and said, let me, let me take him under my wing, and so every road trip, we stayed away from the team hotel. And I told Tori that I was going to keep him out of trouble and keep him out of jail, mainly. He wasn't the type of guy that would stay in his hotel room. He needed to be out and about. He liked to have fun. And so we did. We had a blast that year staying away from the team hotel. We had our own suite. It ended up being a gathering point for our teammates to be able to hide from the media and stay away, stay out of the spotlight. And David Wells knew everybody from especially uh, all of the roadies and all of the managers for for a lot of the musicians and, and musical groups out there and a lot of the actors. And we ended up having some great parties that year. And, and David Wells had the time of his life and he ended up pitching uh, probably his best year that year. He was third in the Shy Young Award that year to Pedro and Clemens that year or one and two, I think. And uh, he also threw his perfect game that year. So at the end of the year, it was the 1998 Yankees, and he was the best pitcher on our team. And we ended up with one of the best records of all time. We were 125 and 50 by the time the year was over. After that, Dan Zimborski chats with Jay Jaffe, who is reporting poolside from his vacation in San Diego. Jay is familiar with the challenges of parenting, and he finds himself relating to the Padres, who are severely disappointed by Fernando Tatis Jr.'s PED suspension and lost season. Jay and Dan discuss the aftermath and fallout of this news, and how it not only affects San Diego's playoff chances, but how it could also impact Tatis's eventual Hall of Fame case a few decades from now. The duo also talk about things like the Dodgers not getting Walker Buehler back this year, Ryan Braun's infamous PED suspension, how the Rockies are doing during all this, and Dan kind of envying Tatis's vocal family support. You know, it's a performance-enhancing drug, but he's essentially been busted for an off-season violation because his season never got going. You know, I guess if he was taking it during the rehab, but it's it sounds like it's a mistake, you know, perhaps an inadvertent one, certainly one of the sillier excuses we've seen in that it doesn't really ring true that he's getting treated for, it was something that was treated for ringworm. But uh, it's a very strange one. Yeah, and his dad has has spoken out a lot about it. <laughs> I wish my mom would defend me as well as his dad does. I mean, oh, my mom uh, once told me, Danny, how has no one ever punched you in the face? I was like, <laughs> oh, man. Like, man, Tatis' dad is way nicer than my mom is. <laughs> oh, man. But before we get to these great segments, I must issue my weekly reminder for you to check out the Fangraphs.com shop. Not only can you get yourself some sweet, sweet Fangraph swag, but you can pick up an ad-free Fangraphs membership. It is the best way to not only browse the site at blazing fast speeds, but also to support the site and everything we do. It is with your help that we can bring you all the statistics and leaderboards and original research and articles and podcasts and everything Fangraphs. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Hey, baseball fans, this is David Lorla. My guest is David Cohn, should be Hall of Famer, 
current broadcaster, definitely a pitching nerd. David, thanks for coming on to Fangraphs Audio. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on, David. Looking forward to talking to you. Let's start with the fact that I have read that you modeled your game after Tom Seaver and and Louis Tiant. Is that correct? Yeah, I was 12 years old uh, when the 1975 World Series was going on, and uh, Louis Tiant was in the center of that World Series pitching for the Red Sox, and I just fell in love with Louis Tiant and his every all of his mannerisms on the mound, his charisma, the way he changed arm angles and threw sidearm sliders just made me want to go out in the backyard and try to, to try to copy him um, and, and try to be just like Louis Tiant. So yeah, when that was me at 12 years old. And what about the Seaver part with the drop and drive? Yeah, I think everybody that watched Tom Seaver pitch as a kid always uh, tried to pitch like him. And I don't think anybody ever could. I don't think anybody's ever gotten as low as he he did on his drop and drive where he, he almost dragged his back knee on the ground. So I certainly tried to pitch like Seaver, but I couldn't do it. I, I came closer to copying Tion, I think, than I did Seaver. So you do think that you and, and Louis Tion were pretty much the same style of pitcher? I tried to copy him. That's for sure. I, you know, I, I don't know if anybody has ever could be as uh, charismatic or as glamorous as Louis Tion, but I certainly stylistically, I, I certainly tried to take some some parts of his delivery and and try to copy it a little bit as 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 much as I could. Uh, I think we all develop our own style. You know, picking pieces away from certain pitchers, but certainly Louis Tion uh, is is was the first one I really tried to copy. Are there any pitchers right now, David, that you think, you know, pitch like David Cohn used to? I would say, you know, there's a few out there that, you know, maybe uh, uh, Johnny Cueto a little bit or even Nestor Cortez with the Yankees uh, certainly changes his arm angle from time to time. So, you know, I, I think there's a lot of pitchers that try to be really consistent with their release point nowadays. And there's a lot of, you know, analytics behind being deceptive or being consistent with your release point, making all your pitches come out of the same window and on the same plane. And certainly the tunneling effect that we see nowadays. So there's not as many that try to change arm angles and give different looks, but probably Nestor Cortez is, might be the closest one. Nasty Nestor. Yeah. So arm angles aside, was there anything really unique? David, about your pitches, did you grip your pitches in a unique way? You know, I think one of the things that that I did was, uh, you know, I held a a fastball with a basic two-seam grip. You know, it's called with the seams. There's a with the seams or a cross seam, which cross seams a four-seam grip and with the seams is a two-seam grip. And I also threw my slider that way as well, the two-seam grip slider. And the thing that that I'm fascinated with now is this concept called seam-shifted wake. That was uh, kind of developed, or the term was developed by Dr. Barton Smith, who's uh, at Utah State doing some studies with his team out there. And I think uh, that I was probably one of the first guys that had some seam shifted wake uh, properties to to my slider because of that two seam grip that I threw mine with, which is a little bit unconventional compared to traditional slider or curveball grip. So that's one of the the reasons I'm kind of fascinated with that concept of seam shifted wake because I I believe that I might have had a little bit of that in in my grip and in my slider. And with Unique in mind, uh, I recently mentioned to you that San Francisco Giants pitching prospect Kyle Harrison is throwing a one-seam sinker. I'm sorry, not sinker, but rather changeup, which is something I'm not really familiar with. But you said that Greg Maddox actually threw his changeup with one finger, with the middle finger. 
Uh, yeah, it's actually the ring finger is that he used his with. It's the weakest finger. I think that's the, the concept behind it is that uh, as you move down from your middle finger to your ring finger to your pinky finger, that it progressively gets weaker down, down the chain. So that if you can learn how to grip any pitch with your weaker fingers and throw it with maximum arm speed, that the velocity will naturally come off of it because of the weakness of the fingers that you use. So Maddox really concentrated on his ring finger and put that on a seam and I think he was sort of uh, along with the seams type of a grip, kind of a two seam change up grip, but he, he put all the emphasis on his ring finger and, and therefore kind of was maybe, I, I guess, de definitively speaking, was was kind of a one finger grip or, or a one finger change up. Well, I had not, not been familiar with that. You know, thinking back to pitchers of, of your from from your era, tell me about uh, the left hander was taken one pick in front of you in the 81 draft. Yes. I, you know, I also, you know, yeah, we, we talk nowadays, you know, that would be the great Sid Fernandez. And if, if you never saw Sid Fernandez pitch, he was really unique, really remarkable. He, his numbers are, are tremendous, had a fantastic uh, underrated career, really hard to hit. But he was one of the first guys that I saw that probably had uh, what they call the invisible, uh, you know, a four seam fastball that had a really high spin rate that was hard to hit, uh, that, that hitters seemed to, to swing under it a lot. And Sid would throw his four seam fastball a little bit above the belt and get a lot of swings and misses with it. And hitters would swing right through it as if they thought they were on it, but they just seemed to miss it. And I think that's what we're seeing now with the vertical movement on a lot of four-seam fastballs or the riding action that a lot of people talk about with, with a high-spin four-seam grip. I think Sid Fernandez was one of the first guys that I ever uh, saw do that. And I used to play catch with Sid in the outfield before the games, and the ball would hit my glove before I expected it to hit my glove. It just had that late life to it, that jumping action that's hard to explain that was kind of natural that now we can kind of measure with spin rate. And I, I believe Sid Fernandez is one of the first high spin guys that I ever saw. And while he quite likely, or actually, I guess, did have very good spin, have you thought much, David, into whether or not vertical approach angle also helped with that movement? Absolutely. You know, I, I think uh, both vertical approach angle and horizontal approach angle are two things that are that are, are being studied more, that are certainly measured uh, in, in all the pitching laboratories and by a lot of major league pitching coaches now. And certainly the vertical approach angle is, is probably more of the steepness, maybe more applicable to, to curveballs, the steepness of a curveball. I know that Nick Pavetta with the Red Sox has a real steep vertical approach angle with his curveball. And certainly the horizontal approach angle may be more for sinkers or even change-ups or things that that have sort of, you know, more side to side movement or horizontal movement on them, maybe two seam pass balls or sinkers. So I'm still learning about it. I'm fascinated with it, but yeah, that's, that's something, you know, Tim McCarver, the, the hall of fame broadcaster used to talk about late movement. He has really late movement on his pitches. Well, now we can measure that with vertical and horizontal approach angles as, as the ball moves through the strike zone, exactly what it's doing, the properties of it, the type of movement it has and the lateness of the break. A little change of direction here. You were a very good athlete. I think that's pretty well known. Could you have succeeded as a position player? No, I don't think so. I was a decent hitter in high school, but I'm not sure that would have translated in, in the big league level. Um, I didn't have a lot of speed. Yeah, I'm not sure if I could have or not. Maybe I, I think I could have played on the college level as a hitter coming out of high school, but I, I 
think I probably chose the right thing trying to pitch. I, you know, that's the thing is if you, if you're going to be a third baseman or a shortstop, you better, you know, are, are you the next George Brett? Can you beat out George Brett if you're, if you're playing for the Royals? And, you know, I was a young third baseman. I don't think I was George Brett. So I, I, there's 10 pitchers on the team. There's only one third baseman. So back then, now there's 13 pitchers on a team. So the numbers were with you to be a pitcher. No, I'm sure you picked right. But one thing that prompted me asking you this is I did look up your record as a hitter. You had 11 multi-hit games and one came in the World Series against a Hall of Fame pitcher. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, I remind John Smoltz of that every time I see him. So that's kind of an ongo- ongoing uh, little needling uh, thing that we have back and forth. Oh, and that should be the case. Yeah, yeah. speaking of John Smoltz, uh, who's obviously a broadcaster now, as are you, as is Dennis Eckersley, but only until the end of this season. Do you have any thoughts or maybe stories on Eck? Yeah, I think, you know, the Dennis Eckersley doesn't get enough credit just for sort of inventing a new language. His baseball lingo is, is legendary within the circles of, of people that were there at the time or played with him or against him. And Certainly he invented or coined the term walk-off, you know, the walk-off uh, game. And nowadays it's kind of been twisted around to be a positive thing. You know, the whole term walk-off was for the pitcher who gave it up, had to walk off. And it was an awful feeling because you just gave up the winning hit or the winning run. And therefore, as the pitcher, the only thing you could do is walk off the mound. And so that, that I think it's uh, people have now used that on the positive sense where people get walk-off hits and it's a positive thing, but. Dennis Eckersley, you know, originally invented that term and it was a negative connotation when he did. So I think we all kind of chuckle. And whenever I see Eck, we talk about walk-off, you know, they somehow being turned into being a good thing nowadays when originally, you know, it was very negative. Eck is definitely an, an original. So let's jump over to a former teammate of yours that I think is very much an original, which would be David Wells. I know that you have got a lot of David Wells stories. Yeah, David Wells was, was a true character, a real nut. You know, he was struggling uh, in the early part of 1998. The 1998 Yankees were obviously one of the one of the best teams of all time, record-wise. It was a legendary team, and he was the, the best pitcher on that team. But early in the year, he really struggled. So I went to Joe Torre, our manager, and said, let me, let me take him under my wing. And so every road trip, we stayed away from the team hotel. And I told Tori that I was going to keep him out of trouble and keep him out of jail, mainly. He wasn't the type of guy that would stay in his hotel room. He needed to be out and about. He liked to have fun. And so we did. We had a blast that year staying away from the team hotel. We had our own suite. It ended up being a gathering point for our teammates to be able to hide from the media and stay away, stay out of the spotlight. And David Wells knew everybody from especially uh, all of the roadies and all of the managers for, for a lot of the musicians and, and musical groups out there and a lot of the actors. And we ended up having some great parties that year. And, and David Wells had the time of his life. And he ended up pitching uh, probably his best year that year. He was third in the Shy Young Award that year to Pedro and Clemens that year, or one and two, I think. And uh, he also threw his perfect game that year. So at the end of the year, it was the 1998 Yankees, and he was the best pitcher on our team. And we ended up with one of the best records of all time. We were 125 and 50 by the time the year was over. You mentioned the New York media. You're familiar, of course, with uh, Atlanta Braves rookie right-hander Spencer Strider, you know, who gets very, he gets great ride uh, on his fastball, but also notable is he just raised the ire of the New York fan base by using the word lucky after a loss to the Mets. I guess that's a, a dangerous uh, phraseology in baseball. 
I guess it can be. I know that there's a way to say exactly what he was saying, and I'm not sure he was wrong to tell you the truth, but there's certainly a way that he could have said it uh, in a less abrasive way. And certainly he could have talked about contact management. He could have talked about exit velocity and he was absolutely correct in saying that, you know what, the expected batting average off of him and his ability to control the contact actually was pretty good in that game. And sometimes that's the way it goes, you know, for, for years in baseball, there was a lot of superstitions about luck. And uh, anybody who's played baseball or understands uh, the nature of sometimes you give up line drives that go right at the fielders and you get lucky and get outs out of it. And other times you you break bats and make great pitches and they fall in for blooping hits. So the difference nowadays is that we can measure that through extra velocity and other, other ways to, to to sort of measure the luck factor in baseball. And that, that's another reason why I'm sort of an enamored with uh, modern analytics, because we actually can kind of carve out the luck factor and, and quantify it a little better than we ever have before. And Spencer Strider actually was probably correct in what he was saying. It was just how he said it, I think, that raised the ire of, of the Mets fan base. No, based on StatCast and the video that I saw, you know, very much. I know we're starting to bump short on time here with your own podcast to record, but I'm wondering, did you ever get in trouble with the media with anything you said back in the day? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, I think we all have. I think the key with the, with the media is, is not to be afraid to make a mistake and just own up to it and, and be a stand-up guy after your games in front of your locker. And, and a lot of times you get the benefit of the doubt. Uh I certainly, you know, in the 1988 playoffs did a ghost-written column with, with Bob Clappish that got a lot of attention in the, in the Los Angeles Dodgers clubhouse in 1988. And the problem I, you know, the mistake I made back then was not seeing a final copy of a ghost-written column that I was given the byline for. So that was a big mistake and a learning learning lesson right then to, to be attributed quotes and not, not exactly um, having the proper context or being able to have final say on what was printed in your name with your byline. So that was a big mistake that I learned early on, but certainly I I've said things uh, that, that were said sarcastically and sometimes sarcasm doesn't come through in print in print media. So you have to be very careful and be clear at times. But I remember making fun of Steve Sparks in a very uh, sarcastic way. He was a knuckleball pitcher for Milwaukee. And I remember saying, saying something uh, as if, uh, he doesn't even look like he's trying out there. He just throws a knuckleball. My arm is killing me after throwing 130 pitches with maximum effort and, you know, kind of in a joking way. And then the, the Milwaukee media wrote it as if I was serious. So I had to have a talk with Steve Sparks about, hey, I was just kidding, man. I love you. I love the way you throw your knuckleball. I wish I could throw a knuckleball like that. But certainly you have to be careful with sarcasm in print media. And he's a pretty good dancer as well, I, I've been told. <laughs> yes, he's a great guy and, and a good broadcaster himself. Oh, no, he and Robert Ford might be my favorite. I shouldn't say favorite. They're one of my favorite broadcast duos. Yeah, they're fantastic, yes. Yeah, I know we are out of time, but I want to touch on one thing. We'd be remiss if we didn't at least address the current day Yankees, specifically their pitching program. I assume you've had some great conversations with Matt Blake and the people spearheading their pitching development. Absolutely. I have. I love Matt Blake. I think he does a tremendous job with the Yankees and, and they it's not just on the big league level. They've sort of reorganized the entire pitching philosophy top to bottom through the minor leagues as well that I think is going to pay dividends for them for years to come. But he, he's great in explaining it that, you know what, it's it's not just the eye test. They, they hold their pitchers accountable with data as well. And they show their pitchers exactly the uh, 
the data uh, that, that shows when they're throwing well and then shows them the data when they get off track. And therefore, uh, it's a lot easier to hold them accountable as opposed to just the old school way where a pitcher would say, you know, an old pitching coach would say, you need to do this or you need to do that. Uh, you know, it's, it's more than just the eye test nowadays. It's, it's showing the pitcher exactly top to bottom what he's doing, his release point, his spin rate, everything that goes into the information age. And showing them when they're going well, what it looks like, and then holding them accountable to that when they get off track and, and, and being able to prove it and back up your theories. So to me, I find it fascinating the way he talks about it, the way he eloquates it, and the, and the way he gets that across and gets the buy-in with his pitchers. I think he's done an outstanding job. And David, talking pitching with you is fascinating. I know we could talk for hours, but you are recording your own podcast, I think, in five minutes. So we'll close with me thanking you for coming on to Fangrass Audio. My pleasure. Let's pick it up again now before the year's over and we can finish what we started here. Sounds like a great plan. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Fangrass Audio. Hi, this is Jay Jaffe for Fangraphs Audio, reporting poolside from San Diego, where I've been for the past 10 or so days on a family vacation that's been part work. I took in a ball game at Petco Park last week, and I'm going to take in another one on Thursday when uh, the Padres play the Nationals here, and everybody will be talking about Juan Soto. They'll be talking about Juan Soto even more now uh, that Fernando Tatis Jr. will not be joining him in the Padres lineup. Last Friday, we learned that Tatis had been suspended for 80 games, uh, including the rest of this season, due to testing positive for a banned substance. Dan Zimborski wrote about the impact of, of Tatis' suspension uh, on the NL wildcard race, and I wanted to talk with Dan uh, about that and about a few other uh, matters as they pertain to the NL races. So uh, here's our own Dan Zimborski. Well, Dan is here, not poolside, but Doritos side. I'm, I'm eating <laughs> flaming Hot Doritos. And my knuckles are the color of Flaming Hot Doritos from reaching into the bag, so it looks like I punched someone, and I have not. Dan, do you need a floaty to go into that bag of Doritos the way my daughter needs needs a floaty to go into the swimming pool that I'm next to here? At some point, but I've eaten a lot of these Doritos. Uh, I, I probably need to go for an actual swim to to cancel out the uh, effect of the Doritos by burning some calories off my belly, which is large. You might need, you might need some chlorine to just burn the uh, Doritos powder off of those hands, too. I, I love pool smells, and when you <laughs> picture a, a pool in San Diego, it smells differently to your brain than a pool in Florida. When I think of a pool in Florida, I think of like a Super 8 motel, and, a, and it doesn't quite smell like a pool in the hotel you're not quite sure if the hotel has a pool or not <laughs> but san diego is a much spicier town and i hope you've been having a good time there it's it's a lovely yeah, place it's a it's a place that i'm that i'm quite fond of this is actually a, a house that uh, we rented last year my my parents uh, out here from salt lake city my brother and his family out here from from seattle and uh so my my daughter who's almost six and uh, her cousin who's almost eight are thick as thieves and they're spending about four hours a day in the swimming pool and uh uh, leaving a lot of the hands-on aspects of parenting to uh, basically to each other, so they they entertain each other, and that's you know when you're when you're a parent of an only child, you have to spend so much more time entertaining your kid. This is kind of a foreign thing to me, even though I grew up with a with a, with a younger brother, so it's just all coming back. But uh, I think the San Diego Padres also feel like they're doing some hands-on parenting or need <laughs> to with a yeah. certain shortstop named Fernando Tatis Jr. Boy. 
I'm trying to remember a situation where a player who has been suspended has had that much vitriol unloaded upon him by his own teammates and organization. And I'm not coming up with one. I mean, I know other than the standard, we're disappointed in him. I mean, there's a lot, I think, of latent anger that's coming to the surface here. And maybe it has to do with the fact that, you know, Tatis had already missed the first two thirds of the season, literally by his own hand here through the uh, the, the wrist injury that uh, probably came about via a motorcycle accident. But what do you think about that? And it's it's a frustrating situation for the Padres. Uh, I mean, Tatis, of course, you know, is a is a, is still a young guy who's, and we've all probably made some pretty bad decisions at at his age. But you know, first you have the injury, which was likely his fault, and then the use of the drug, which is definitely his fault. And that it 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 stinks for the team because they expected so much from him the organization did not give him you know a a massive contract uh, of that type because they thought he wasn't gonna contribute and the, their their time is now they're in competition for a playoff spot right now and he's not there i mean it's at the point that mike clevenger was piling on him and of course mike clevenger is the one who got in trouble yeah. <laughs> for his little his little covid dinner party with his friends that got him in trouble and kind of pushed him out the door in Cleveland. Yeah. But normally you see like some whispers or some leaks, but this time the, there was a lot of very, very direct commentary from the team and his teammates. And I, I, I think they're hoping that it will have a good effect on Tatis rather than keeping it quiet. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I, you know, I guess he, he needed the, the, uh, the so-called come to Jesus aspect of this, you know, it as a, a real wake up call. I mean, we've already heard about the narrative about Miami Machado earning respect as a leader in, in the, in the Padres clubhouse from basically calling out to tease and, you know, getting him, you know, to take things more seriously last year or earlier, earlier this year or whatever. I guess it was last year now because obviously he hasn't been there this year. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's disappointing. And, you know, I think obviously the Padres have $340 million invested in him. And, and, uh, a lot of us, uh, you know, I think had, had seen Tatis as, as really kind of a face of baseball type guy who, you know, just really brought a, a unique flair to the game and helped to legitimize the Padres as a contender, you know, based on how they did, you know, with him in, in 2020, especially. And, and so, yeah, this is a kick in the groin for them, you know, to be, to be without him. And I keep going back and thinking about the, the piece that I wrote in February of last year, the headline, Fernando Tatis Jr. has a clear shot at Cooperstown. Well, now it's anything but clear that he's got a shot at Cooperstown. And, you know, even before we get to that aspect of things, we had a Zips projection for him from Dan, if I believe in this. And it's just, oh, actually, the Zips projection is not actually in here. That might have been in the, in the piece of the signing. But just I really wonder, first of all, Dan, what does missing a full year due to a player's long-term projection. I know you've, you've said in the article that you really haven't found much difference in terms of, you know, missed time due to a PED suspension versus missed time due to, due to an injury. Uh, well, it does have an effect because missing a season creates a lot of uncertainty. And there was already some uncertainty with Tatis because even before the, the, the broken wrist, he does have a relatively 
lengthy injury history, not on the level of, say, Eric Davis, but enough that you wonder, hey, how often is he going to really get into 140, 150 games a year? Uh, But even even with that, he had, you know, a pretty juicy projection. I think the long term projections at the time went went into uh, uh, Ben Clemens's piece uh, for the signing. Uh, But Zips coming into the year had him at, you know, in well into the 70s for for career war, which is Mm -hmm. enough to put you in the Hall of Fame as a shortstop. And it'll probably even more so that way, because by the time Tatis would come up for election, the the electorate will be people who have largely grown up with this data. Uh, I mean, if it's 15, 20 years until he graduates, I mean, I'm going to be in my mid to late 60s at the time. Uh, I don't want to think about that, but hmm. it'll it'll be a very different generation. Obviously, there'll, be, there'll still be some people that use older school numbers and not everyone who's older uses only older school numbers. But I think that normally you'd see a little difference from how he could be considered in, say, 2040 than, than now. So the, the, the concept consequences aren't huge even with a year off it's just the reputational hit is is so massive and we haven't had one of these young phenom players get busted for steroid use before a rod we kind of found out about kind of in retrospect so it wasn't something that we heard at the time to affect his reputation at the time and it wasn't something that he had to get through at the time and so we don't know how that really will affect a player because now he's going to get a lot of crap from people for a very long time, no matter how often he's tested, no matter how often it comes up negative, no matter how great he is, he's going to hear that. And we don't know if that's going to fade. It seems to sometimes fade for players like Nelson Cruz or Frankie Montes. You don't hear people really talk about that anymore. But Tatis, as one of the elites and a face of baseball, it's it's just massive. And so we're kind of in uncharted territory here. Yeah, I think the the suspension that it probably might be closest to is the Ryan Braun suspension, you know, from Biogenesis in 2013. He was the 2011 MVP and had a similarly strong season after that. He was only 29 when he was suspended. And I don't know, I'd have to go back. Maybe I, I would say perceptually, you know, coming off of uh, an MVP season and then a league-leading home run season at 28 with uh, five all-star appearances, he looked like he was on a Hall of Fame path. I mean, the defense in the war, you know, even with that was, you know, he had what? He had 33 war, this is baseball reference version here, through his age 28 season and then uh, was limited to 61 games in, in 2013 and had this biogenesis suspension and only had a couple seasons that were even two war after that, you know, and a, a lot of injuries and, and certainly a lot of, you know, damage to his reputation. I think Ryan Braun probably did more damage to his reputation through PEDs than just about anybody because of the way he impugned the test collector. Other thing that's interesting to me besides besides the the positioning of this in that regard is that we don't really have a lot of strong evidence that any of this was done while Tatis was actually performing. You know, it's a performance enhancing drug, but he's essentially been busted for an off season violation because his season never got going. You know, I guess if he was taking it during the rehab, but it's it sounds like it's a mistake. You know, perhaps an inadvertent one, certainly one of the sillier excuses we've seen in that it doesn't really ring true that he's getting treated. for It was something that was treated for ringworm, but uh, it's a very strange one. 
Yeah, and his dad has has spoken out a lot about it. I wish my mom would defend me as well as his dad does. I mean, my mom once told me, Danny, how has no one ever punched you in the face? I was like, <laughs> oh, man. like man, Tatis' dad is way nicer than my mom is. <laughs> Oh, man. Well, you know, ouch. <laughs> I don't know what to say to that one. <laughs> but I have never wanted to punch you in the face, though. So I'm in your corner here, Dan. Oh, I appreciate it. <laughs> um, so so my, my question would be, in the article, I went off on how I go about steroid use right. and drugs and the, the philosophy of cheating and how it would affect my vote. I'm still a couple years away. Uh, Obviously, right. Tatis won't come up for a long time. So I'm curious, where do you stand on this? Now I'm going to put you in the in the bullseye for that. Right. Well, see, I, you know, I think the general distinction I've drawn is that what's happened, you know, bef- what happened before testing and penalties was in place is the Wild West. I, I, you know, I don't really think I should have a bearing on a player's Hall of Fame case. I voted for Barry Bonds. I voted for Roger Clemens. You know, I think there are reasons other than PED to think about why we might not want them in the Hall of Fame. But, you know, I voted for those guys. I did not vote for Manny Ramirez, who failed two tests in the testing era. I don't foresee voting for Alex Rodriguez because of his suspension. I don't foresee voting for Robinson Cano with the two suspensions. So Tatis, by that logic, would fall on that side of things. But I think, you know, we're also talking, it's you know, very, very well, maybe 20 years from now that we're voting, in which case I'm going to be a very old man when, when this comes up. We, at this, at this juncture, we have not seen anybody with a positive test and suspension get elected to the Hall of Fame. I think there's a very good chance that sometime over the next 20 years, that's going to change. And I think when that does change, I think we may have to do a little bit of uh, uh, reevaluation of our own well-dug-in positions as to as to what that means, because that will mean something that you know that should not that maybe this isn't something that should carry a lifelong stigma. But uh, I think it's really on you know Tatis to come back and to be a good citizen within the game of baseball. And for some, that's harder than others. And and you know, I mean. It's interesting to see the respect with which Robinson and his team, with which Robinson Cano is held within the game, you know, and the fact that oh, you know, the Padres and the and the Braves are very excited to bring him onto their teams, even though he's you know kind of carries a stigma of a twice suspended guy who's you know probably played his way out of the you know pissed his way out of the Hall of Fame, but he's he's welcome in those clubhouses and, and uh, something of a role model. Uh, I, you know, I think Tatis does have a long time to earn back the, you know, the respect of people. I don't know if that's going to change the, the Hall of Fame outcome. I don't know if he'll even be worthy of the Hall of Fame when it's all said and done. You know, we've seen now, I think the calculation is he's played 273 career games out of a potential, what's about 540 you know, since the start of the 2019 season and, and the end of this season, that's not a very good attendance record. And, you know, it, it might just, you know, maybe that maybe his performance has been influenced by those drugs. Maybe this is just a fluke, but he really does have that talent. But maybe he's not going to realize all this talent because at some point the shoulder injuries and the other injuries and maybe the irresponsible behavior is going to come back and, and have an impact. I mean, I guess when we look at him as being so young, I mean, let's say he plays in the majors for 18 more years. He never tests positive again. I mean, philosophically, it becomes really hard yeah, to disqualify him. It's just- I agree. I don't, I, don't, I don't know that it has to be a disqualifier, especially, again, you know, where we're in this position where we don't really know that he's, had, he's taken it in season. 
least at the major league level. So it, it is it's tough to foresee. It's even tougher to foresee 20 years from now. It is sort of an interesting so I have an airplane going in my head here. Is it a big airplane? That's a helicopter, actually. Sorry. Oh, are they after you? Are you in trouble? I don't think so. I'm doing my best radio impression here. Oh, because if a helicopter swooping in and arresting a fangrass person for something during a podcast Boy, would be a very ratings. highly yeah. Our segment would go before David Lorela with David Cohn. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> sorry about that. Yeah, I, it is. I think an interesting, you know, an interesting, you know, theoretical or hypothetical to ponder. Because I don't, you know, I think 20 years from now, the landscape is going to look very different. And, I, and you know, the landscape for, for performance evaluations might look very different as well. So who's to say? But when I did the Tatis long-term projection and the Juan Soto long-term projection, Mike Trout long-term projection contemplated the idea that I could be voting for the hall, voting for a Hall of Famer at age 70. Boy, that was something to, to ponder. Yeah, we'll be old, but uh, hopefully we're still around. Yeah. Now, what, what, what I kind of want to contrast it with is I don't know if it's just that my my point of view is isn't quite as in depth with the average fan, but it doesn't seem like when an NFL player gets busted for PED use that it doesn't seem to have the same kind of uproar that it does in baseball. No, I know DeAndre Hopkins was was suspended for six games. Uh, for uh, the, uh, the 2022 for performance enhancing substances and i haven't seen anywhere near the vitriol as for baseball players in similar parts of their careers and similar skill uh so it does it, it does kind of make you wonder because you don't see anything about him or will fuller and patrick peterson it doesn't feel like football fans are as upset about that kind of thing as baseball fans did and yeah. it could be because it's been around in football for longer and they've had that time to get used to it that we might have in 20 years well i think the other thing is is that you know the perception at least is that the baseball players who were using the bad drugs you know broke records that were considered sacrosanct and NFL, I mean, none of those records are sacrosanct in the same way. Nobody, you know, nobody holds those numbers as mythical and magical the way that baseball does when it comes to, you know, Babe Ruth's home run total or Roger Maris's home run total or, you know, any one of a number of key stats that we, that we can point to. I mean, it's NFL, that just, it's, that's not a thing. Nobody could tell you who, you know, how many yards, you know, the all time leading rusher has down to, you know, with, with like off the top of their head, unless they're, you know, extremely nerdy, but it's very easy for a casual fan to tell you that, that Barry Bonds broke Hank Aaron's record of 755 home runs, but then maybe they'll add, but it's illegitimate because he used PEDs. And, uh, I just, there's nobody who, I don't think there's anybody who feels that way about football players, you know, because I don't think they've toppled the records and I don't think the records are held in the same regard. So I'm hoping this is the last young superstar we talk about steroids for a while. It seems MLB has such a record with some of their great players. I mean, Bonds, Clemens, A-Rod, Tatis, come on. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, uh, let's, let's count our blessings here. The year that Tatis is playing at a time when he is one of just many, many, many good young stars. I mean, you know, Juan Soto, Shohei Otani. If one of them got busted, I think it would break my heart. Like, yeah, I, okay. Yeah, I'm just team steroids it, now. <laughs> if it was, if it was, you know, if it, if if there were that many of them, yes, I think it would be a crusher. But fortunately, it's still, you know, it's still just one guy, and it's still this is not something we've seen from a player this young. It's not, it's not an epidemic here. I mean, it's, it's rare that we get a PED suspension these days that makes any kind of waves. The other thing let's let's talk about here is the impact on the playoff races. You know, because the Padres 
I think you know they've they've done pretty well this year in terms of patching the hole left by Tatis. Ha Seong Kim, who did not have a very good first season last year, has really come into his own and is hitting at about a league average clip and uh, uh, playing good enough defense that he's already I think at uh, about two and a half WAR. So the Padres were going to have to figure out how to get. Uh, or how to keep him in the lineup and get Tatis in the lineup and do uh, maybe some juggling with Tatis in the outfield, which their outfield has been pretty weak, which is one of the reasons why they traded for Juan Soto in, in the first place. But your projections, what do, what do they say about the, the loss of Tatis over the remainder of the season in terms of the Padres' playoff chances? Well, in, in playoff chances, it knocked them from the, from the mid-80s to the mid-70s, uh, which is pretty significant. That essentially makes it a, a 1 in 10 chance that they missed the playoffs uh, in this universe where they otherwise would not have. And that's even with only losing a win. It's just that they are in such a tight race. There are still some tiebreakers, and I hate that. We're never getting yeah. team entropy this year because right. there's tiebreakers. Yeah. And it, it's, it's, a, it's a significant hit because as well as they've done this season with Kim, with Cronenworth playing in, in the middle infield, they're not Tatis. And the right. projections all expected and baked in some kind of form of return for Tatis. And now we know that's not happening. So it's just not the same. Uh, as I said, the Padres are fortunate to pick up Brandon Drury because he's he's depth that they need more now than they did uh, two weeks ago. So it hurts them. Yeah, I thought that the Drury transaction looks very smart now and stealthy. Well, getting back to the, the impact of the uh, on the playoff odds, Who's the beneficiary? The Brewers, the, the primary beneficiary of that ten point drop. Is it the Brewers or is it the Phillies? It was. It was mostly. It, it was pretty well divided between the other wild card eligible teams. Uh, mm -hmm. One of the biggest beneficiaries, amusingly, is the Dodgers because they still have a lot of games left against the Padres. Huh. They still have. They still have nine games left against the Padres, but Lord. not like the Dodgers actually need those nine games. But the uh, the Padres are done playing. The Brewers, they still have six against the Giants. The Giants snuck back a percentage point from San Diego's tally simply okay. because they have those head-to-head -head games, and it does affect their standing against the Padres in those head-to-head -head games. Um, wow. Gives them a chance to also get the tiebreaker. And the Cardinals also have a series left with the Padres. So it was, it was the biggest help for those teams, as, as you might expect. Uh, it also trimmed off their World Series odds, again, as you might expect. And, you know, it's going to have a small effect on their odds next year because depending on how deep the Padres go this, this October, Tatis could miss fewer games or he could miss more games. If they don't make the playoffs, he's going to miss, you know, considerably more. Right. So this, there's, there's, there's a lot of baseball consequences. And under that umbrella, it's not surprising that we have seen some of the comments we have. Yeah, I think it's was a it maximum of 22 playoff games. Was that the number? Yeah, unless I'm adding wrong, because there's the three, five, seven, seven. Right. Okay, that makes sense here. So one other thing that we, one other development that's happened in the past week of uh, significance that wanted to bring into this, and that's the the loss of Walker Bueller for the rest of the season. I wrote about Clayton Kershaw's injury and the the sudden sudden void in the in the Dodgers rotation, which it's not really so much a void in that they've they've got the depth, but their quiet deadline made a little less sense because they traded away Mitch Wright, who in the postseason probably doesn't even make the make the cut, but in the regular season had the sixth highest start total on the team. I think he'd made 15 starts, and then suddenly he's gone. And I know that the Dodgers believe that Dustin May can give them some innings, but you know we we see Tommy John surgery all the time. Guys come back even when they've come back after you know a long absence. You know he's not rushing back, and you know 
this guy's working his ass off and and if he starts to have you know problems with the workload you know they're going to shut him down or they're going to be very cautious so i don't think you can count on him as suddenly being a, an easy plug and play option as easily it's presented and and you know we've seen Kershaw try to rehab from an injury and get ready for the playoffs and last year that spun out of control and he wasn't ready and they had to go without him so I guess the um, I, I wanted to know what the impact of that was on the on their odds and how that all fits together with with the Padres. Now, obviously, in, when you look at the rotation, they have picked very well in the absence of of these pictures. Right, Tyler Anderson is is an all star. Uh, now, Urias, of course, is always good. Tony Gonsolin is is also pitching incredibly well this season. Uh, Zips is a little more concerned about regression toward the mean for these pictures than it right. would have been for Bueller and Kershaw. And it does represent significant risk because they're kind of running out of runway of of replacements. They do have yep. Andrew Heaney back and he- Heaney's been terrific. I think much better than anyone thought, probably better than the Dodgers have thought where they would have signed him to a bigger contract than they did than his one year, eight and a half million dollar deal. But this puts them in kind of a little pinch because if there's another injury now, right, the the bank starts to look a little thin. There are no August waiver trades you can make anymore. They've got the army that they've got. Yeah, and even and even a you know a single you know like I saw the Carlos the Carlos Carrasco injury where it's a mild oblique strain and it's three or four weeks. Well, you know you you don't have a lot much much room for error when that happens. You know to get a guy back for the playoffs when you start you know like you said one one injury away from that situation where I mean we saw we've seen the Dodgers use last year they were using openers in the playoffs and that that looked pretty bad and it didn't go so great, even though it wasn't the entire reason they lost. I mean, I think Walker Bueller throwing on three days of rest and not throwing well on three days of rest was probably the bigger reason, but it, it all came from the same place, uh, which was the Dodgers being short of starters and, you know, trying to get too much out of Bueller, trying to get too much out of Urias and, and not having Kershaw there. And it just, it suddenly seems like, well, this is a powerhouse team, but do they have enough starting pitching? And one, one of the things that goes into that is that teams have lost up to two off days in the playoffs this year. Yeah, it's true too. So there's going to be more back-to-back games at the at the back end of the NLDS, at the back end of the NLCS, which makes some of these scenarios a little harder to do because you could have a situation where the Dodgers have to fly to New York and there's no travel day. And if they have a light rotation and and the Mets, say the Mets or whoever it is, or the Phillies are in a better situation health wise, that could be one of those X factors that cost them because the bullpen will be more tired. You'll have fewer pictures that you can really pitch on short rest. So it's one of those things that could be something that, that comes into play but there are some real downside risks for the Dodgers enough that until the Tatis injury Zips had put the Dodgers just below the Padres in terms of postseason roster strength like that that general estimation but of course losing uh-huh. Tatis knocked 26 points off off the Padres so that that's kind of not a thing anymore yeah okay well, interesting stuff here, and I think uh, obviously there's uh, we've, we've still got a good chunk of the season to go and to see how this plays out, but it, it does seem to be a real bummer that we're not doing it without Fernando Tatis Jr. We're also not doing it without Walker Bueller. The NL West, which has become a very, very interesting division, is suddenly a little bit less so because of this injury. I don't know. Anything else uh, you want to hit on, on on the subject? Well, you could say in the NL West with all these disasters and the Giants struggling – 
Everything's coming up Rockies. <laughs> yeah, I don't think everything's coming up Rockies, though, but it was it was a nice story about that that 31-year-old uh, making the major leagues for the first time last week. I got choked up watching that video of him FaceTiming his mom. Oh, that was a, that was a great one. And it's the kind of thing, I know we weren't going to talk about the Rockies, but it's the kind of thing the Rockies haven't done a good job of doing is looking at some of their minor league veterans and trying to get them playing time. I think at Tom Murphy a few years ago, Mike Talkman, the Rockies had no interest in players like that, right, uh, and right. they really are looking at at Bernard, uh, and that that's cool, even if it doesn't work out. Yeah, Winton Bernard is the name. It was on the tip of my tongue there, and I couldn't remember until I until I looked it up on on Fangraphs here. But yeah, there's you're right. When when you're out of the race, you sh- probably should be taking a look at those minor leaguers to see if if you've got anything. Even if it's not anything, you might fool somebody else into thinking it's it's something, and you know that's that much more reason for the Rockies to, to do something besides sit on their hands. And we bust on the Rockies all the time, and with good cause. But uh, that's, this was a nice <laughs> moment for them. <laughs> so, so Jay, the the night is still young for you. Are there any drinks with an umbrella in it in the future? Not tonight. Maybe tomorrow. I'm supposed to uh, meet up with some locals, including our own uh, colleague Jason Martinez. Uh, we are going to a, a uh, bar close to where I am in Pacific Beach. Here, don't try to find it because it will be too late by the time this podcast hits the street, <laughs> um, and I will be uh, <laughs> leaving town. But uh, I, I'm I'm not much of an umbrella drinks guy, and, and San Diego is is a great craft beer town and it's nice to get some of the best craft beer in the country out here for me well i don't want to hold jay any longer from any any drinks umbrella or otherwise and also it's after midnight where i am uh in in ohio which is much less festive and there's much less of an ocean nearby no salty smelly air just bad chili but thank you for joining us for fangraphs audio for my colleague jay jaffe i'm dan zaborski and you've been listening to fangraphs audio This has been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you to David Cohn for joining us. If you want to check out his podcast, it is called Towing the Slab. And thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the program, consider suggesting it to a friend or two. It would help us out. After you've moseyed over to the Fangraphs shop, don't forget to also sign up for the Fangraphs newsletter. This is the best way to keep up on everything we have going on, free to your inbox. That will do it for us this week. Be excellent to each other, and we'll talk to you next time.